So uh, I want to go back to a uh, little bit more uh, to De Quincey, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about Coleridge. But I wanted to ask you, what did you guys think about the uh, Reginald Scott, James the First debate, or James the Sixth debate? Interesting. I mean, we live in a time of a witch hunt worse than any witch hunt that has ever occurred in history, a witch hunt that is going on even as we speak in Washington, D.C. So um, it's interesting to see what another chief executive is saying about witches and witch hunts um, back at the end of the 16th century. And uh, so, you know, I, th I thought uh, I arranged this class so that we could get more insight into um, what, what's going on in um, contemporary politics. Um, so, uh, any thoughts about Reginald Scott and about James? Yeah, Ari. It's interesting how, um, I think it was Scott said, well, witches couldn't really be real because it's God who does all this stuff. And then mm -hmm. the response was, um, well, the witches do exist and they're working for the devil, which explains why. It's not God. Yeah. It's still they can exist. Yeah. Um, and why, um, so Scott is obviously right. And I, th I hope we all agree. Um, and what he is, one of the things that he, I think gives a really nice account of is confirmation bias, what we now call confirmation bias, which is that if bad things happen to people and you can say, well, look, sometimes witches uh, curse people or they get angry or whatever, and then some of those people actually get sick, therefore it looks like the witches are doing it. But he's specifically saying they, that, that all that's happening there is that if you believe that coincidence turns into confirmation bias, that people are always getting sick, people, uh, bad things happen to people all the time. He's even got a kind of proto-probabilistic idea that, that you can expect a certain uh, quantity of bad things to happen in any place where things are happening. And if there's someone you can blame, then you see cause and effect where there is at most correlation. But both James and um, Scott are interested in people who think they're witches. That is, people who think that they have power to do things and who therefore believe in their own uh, their, their, their own infernal uh, uh, ability to make things happen. And so the fact that someone confesses to being a witch, if, did, did people read, if you read through what James says about people who confess to being witches, the fact that they confess to being a witch doesn't mean that they are a witch. Uh, there are different reasons to confess. One reason to confess, why, do pe why are people confessing t in the trials that James goes to? What would, what would a modern person who doesn't believe that people really are witches? Yeah, Grace. Well, like, if you're being threatened and, like, the punishment for, like, confessing to be a witch is, like, less than, like, not, like saying that you're not, mm -hmm. then if you confess, it's better for you. Yeah, because they might torture you to try to get an answer. <clears throat> or they do torture you to do. try to get an answer. Yeah, yeah. so one so thing... Sorry, say it again? So you'd rather just confess because the torture a lot of the time, because even if the punishment is death, a lot of the time the torture is going to kill you, so... Yeah. 
Yeah, so if you, yeah, Nicole. I think in the crucible it starts because they all start making confessions about witchcraft when they're really not. Yeah, yeah and you know that the crucible is actually about the anti-communist witch hunts in the 1950s, right? Did you know that? No. Okay, that's why <laughs> Arthur Miller wrote the crucible. My father said does he? Well, I said last time that whenever somebody doesn't like something he likes, he calls them a communist. Oh, that's right, of course, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so he's a witch hunter and not a witch hunted. Well, no, he's just a crazy person. But, you know, I mean, that's a good I'll let him know you said that. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, as a commie myself, at least by, by his lights. Uh, the, so, so, yeah, the crucible is, is precisely about the way during the 1950s, the, the witch hunts, that's where the phrase witch hunt becomes a political phrase. Uh, the 1950s witch hunts were about putting pressure on people to name names and to accuse other people. And the, the, the way that you can get people to accuse each other of things, to confess and accuse, you know, it's what, it's what 1984 is all about as well. Uh, 1984 being slightly before that. Uh, anyone know what year 1984 was published or was written? It was in 48. Yeah, yeah, so he just switched the last two digits. That's how it got to be 1984. So, but you, if you read James, if you read James's account of the witch's confessions and um, just how, how many people turned out to be involved, then and if you don't believe that they really were witches, uh, even if you do accept that some of them thought they were, because that's something Shakespeare's interested in as well. How many people have read Henry IV Part One? So in Henry IV Part One, Owen Glendower, who is the Welsh rebel, do people remember the character? He is the father of the person whom Hotspur marries, Hotspur's wife. So he's Welsh, he is a rebel, he hates Henry IV, he is um, also a big believer in his own supernatural power. And he says, I can call, I forget exactly, but it's, um, I, can, I can call uh, storms out of the sky, I, I can call the heavens um, from, I, I can call the stars from the heavens. And he's boasting about this, and then Hotspur, who's a complete skeptic, says, why, so can I, but will they come when you call them? <laughs> so the idea is, yeah, you can say spells, you can do things, but the things that you do, the question is, do they have any effect? And Hotspur's skepticism is, of course, Shakespeare's skepticism at that moment. Shakespeare is, whenever you have irreverence in any, really in any work of literature, it's very, very rare that the irreverence will turn out to be false. It's very, very rare that you're not getting something like the author's point of view when you get the irreverence. Sometimes irreverence will be punished, but, it, but it's really, really rare that true irreverence, the kind of irreverence that entertains an audience, that is therefore an appeal to the audience by the work of literature itself, that appeal has to reflect what the author is thinking. So it's pretty clear that Shakespeare was not a believer in witches or in the efficacy of magical spells. It's not that magical spells don't sometimes work in his plays. It's that when there's a question as to whether magic is real or not, the answer in Shakespeare is almost always, that's silly. Of course it's not real. And, yeah. Um, in Act 4 of Macbeth, there's... Um 
royal, the royal consistent protest and the healing hand of the King of England. And that, of course, is, has carried metaphorical power into the act, it, act five, where like the, the deceased body of Scotland is being healed. But mm -hmm. still, that was a, even though that was a legal fiction that, was, that continued until the 19th century, but still, that's, that still has some mystic qualities to it, you know, like the, the, the idea that king has the kind of power, but whereas in, in uh, the physical witchcraft, like it is being denied that the, I mean, like the, the, the power of prophecy is being denied, and the, all the other powers are slightly denied. So, like, yeah. how, how was how were they reconciled? In, if, in you mean the king's touch versus which? So, uh, do people know what the king's touch is? Do you want to explain it? Um, try. I mean, I. Yeah, so it's partly that kings ruled by divine right and that they are therefore God's vicar on earth. Where do people know what the word vicar means? I know you've seen it in lots of nineteenth century novels, but does anyone actually know what it means? What? Isn't a vicar like a representative of something? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's where we get the word vicarious. Yeah. And um, also the word vice, as in vice president, not as in doing something that is fun. And the, um, so God's vicar on earth means God's, um, the, the, the person who represents God on earth and who is anointed, who's the Lord's anointed. This is a big thing in Richard II where Shakespeare is, is thinking about the king's two bodies um, in uh, um, very, very deeply. And uh, so just quickly for those who weren't in the Shakespeare class in the fall where we talked a bit about the king's two bodies, the idea is that there's a capital K king that is always the king. And the king is God's anointed on earth, the representative of God, and there is never a moment when there is not a king, a capital K king. So when you talk about the king's demise, we take that as synonymous with death that um, the king dies, but demise actually means the putting off of the crown. And it happens when a king dies, is that the king, small k king, dies, but at the moment of the small k king's death, he stops being king, at that, and instantaneously someone else is king. And there has never been a moment where, where there hasn't been a king. And, the, and or we shouldn't say a king, the king. Hence, the king is dead, long live the king. The, um, this goes back to Norman times in England, that the, if you were to spell that um, informatively, it would be the small k king is dead. The king with a small k is dead. Long live the king with an, do I want to say capital? I do not. What do I want to say? Uppercase king. So the lowercase king is dead. Long live the uppercase king because that king will live until judgment day. And so the divinity of the king is something that is both something that, that small k kings rely on. We're the Lord's anointed. Not all the rain in heaven can wash the ointment from off an anointed king. 
but also something the kings rely on too much because they confuse themselves with the mystical or um, body politic rather than the body natural in which they are the embodiment of the um, of the state but also the embodiment of God who is create who who is who is embodying the state within the capital or the uppercase K king. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, and, and, and I've heard that that in those times, like you said, in the times of the Normans, it was considered very. Uh, it was considered like a no-no, basically, to kill the to kill a king. Yeah. Because even if you were fighting him, because they were considered to be chosen by God, so William went to the Pope yeah. and asked for his blessing uh, uh, to kill Harold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it so when you when you lift your hand against the Lord's anointed, and this this goes all the way back to um, the book of of judges that David refused ever to do any, Saul was trying to kill him and um, David kept get, having Saul in his power and everyone said you have to kill him now, he's been trying to kill you, you should be king, get rid of Saul and David keep, keeps saying I cannot lift my hand against the Lord's anointed and the result is that everyone says wow David we're not worthy of him, he's so great Saul wouldn't act this way, and it so politically it really helps David, and that's also what Shakespeare is. That's a story Shakespeare is retelling in the Henry the Fourth plays. But one of the ideas is that the king's touch is a little bit like Jesus's touch, and this is something that Scott spends a lot of time on uh, in being able to cure maladies so that people would come, if the king was visiting, people would line up to be touched by the king in hopes of being cured by his touch. And if it didn't work, well, that's because they didn't really believe or because they didn't, you know, so, and would it sometimes work? Sure, psychosomatic stuff um, uh, often works. And lots of, you know, that, that's where placebos come from. So the king's touch is, is we know that it's a placebo, but it, but the idea of a placebo, well, maybe it's something that Scott is starting to think through as well. And uh, other, other people have had thought through this before modern scientific investigation of placebo effects. But the king's touch, then, is supposed to be magical in, and what you're suggesting, right, is that it seems to be magical in the same way that whatever witches do is magical but that the king, as a representative of God, is, is doing good magic, and the witches, as a representative of whom? The devil. the devil. is doing bad magic. And one of the things that, that uh, James seems to be uncertain of is where the witches get their power. So James thinks witches can do, can do evil things. But he also thinks that, and he's got an a, a amazingly misogynistic moment why there are so many more women witches than men witches, and it's because women. Um, that's basically what he says. And the, but the idea is that witches are, don't really have the power they seem to have but they are being supported in their power by the devil who does have the power to cause damage and to do terrible things. So witches don't really have that power, 
but when they do things because they have sworn fealty to the devil and because they have um, had their devilish baptism, do people remember how uh, you where the marks come from that show that you have been um, baptized by or the equivalent of baptized by the devil? See, this stuff is so lurid and fun. You should really do the reading. Um, yeah. The devil like licks you, basically. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, if you have a birthmark, you're in trouble. If you're a witch, or if you're being accused of being a witch, and um, and where it's supposed to come from is the devil licks you, and that's the mark of the devil upon you. And the devil usually licks you someplace where it won't where. Um, it won't be obvious to all the good people who would therefore avoid you. So uh, you have to strip people who are accused of witchcraft naked and shave off all their hair and just look for any place where you can find the devil's mark. Those people would have went to town on the Kyle Gorbachev. Yes, really, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, so and, and then you can usually find some evidence if you're looking that someone has um, is in the good graces or the evil graces of the devil, who then, when they cast spells, the devil will make those spells come true because they themselves can't do it. Were you going to say something? No, I, I mean, like, the example you just gave before this was, in, in terms of words, like, um, it, it, it seems that the skepticism of the character, whose name I forgot. Hotspur. Hotspur was directed against, like, a, a possible challenger to throw rather than yeah. Skepticism is never directed to the legal fiction, political theology of English monarchy. So I, that that's where like I, I mean like I, I suspect like the extent to which like he, the, the skepticism of Shakespeare was carried through the, its possible like radical potential. Like it's it's it stops there almost. Well, yeah, officially it does. Officially. But Shakespeare never shows kings able to cure people with the king's touch. What he shows is uh, are, are kings who are unable to sustain their own power. And almost all of his plays are about kings unable to sustain their own power. And those who do sustain their power do it through shrewd politics rather than through, I mean, what Richard II is about. So that's the Henry, Henry IV part one is the sequel to Richard II. What Richard II is about is a king who believes that he has divine power. That is, he believes that God, he says, it doesn't matter if there are 10,000 men arrayed against me, for God hath in his pay an angel for every one of these men who's in my army so that he's completely alone except all the angels in heaven are going to protect him against a, a, a gigantic army that's coming against him. And he's just wrong about that. His belief in his own divine or semi-divine status is simply wrong. And Shakespeare isn't going to be skeptical. He, he, he doesn't represent kings calling except for Richard. Well, maybe, yeah, he does in Richard. He, he, he represents in Richard kings who believe that they can call down divine uh, um, aid and that they will do so effectively. And it's just silly for Richard to think that. There are other kings who try to, but they know that they're failing. They do it the way we do it when we say, God damn it, knowing that damning something isn't actually going to work. Um, we'd be much more careful if we thought it would work. And, um, but 
King Lear would be an example of that. He's always calling upon uh, the, the fury of the heavens to help him, and uh, the heavens don't, and he doesn't really expect them to. Part of the point is to indulge in the experience of frustration, which is itself a proof to himself about how evil his daughter, how how evilly his daughters have treated me. That is part of, part of the psychology that Shakespeare is interested in, is when is the very natural human psychology that we all feel, but that Shakespeare may be the first person to have described accurately, where you work yourself up to making to feeling just how bad your situation is. It's it's when you are unhappy and you make yourself unhappier. We've all had the experience of trying to talk other people out of doing that when something, you know, when they, they got a, a C in a class or something like that and they just get angrier and angrier and we try to, we try to talk them out of that. But people get angrier and angrier because it's a way to demonstrate to themselves how unfairly they've been treated where their own reaction becomes proof that they're having the right reaction. And we've all had that experience, and Shakespeare is really, really good in King Lear at describing that experience. But that's not the whole point of wanting to prove that you've been treated unfairly is to prove that God isn't helping you either, that even God is being unfair to you. And if God were started being fair to you, it would really take the wind out of your sails. It's not clear that you really, really want that. It's more like you want to be frustrated. Um, Grace. So in, with the example of King Lear, would he have like yielded up the capital K king like power like when he gives up the kingdom? Nice question. So like, wouldn't he not have power in any way? Because he's like, I'm relinquishing my kingship. So I'm not sure how much Shakespeare is thinking about the issue in King Lear because there isn't, uh, because, or if he is thinking about it, he's thinking about it in a different way because it's generally agreed that the decision to divide the kingdom in three is, uh, is a shocking mistake mm -hmm. that is not a personal mistake but a shocking political mistake, that it's the end of England. It's, um, I don't know, you could call it exit for England exiting from in, in, and, and turning into something smaller. But he does say that during his life he will retain the name and all the addition of a king. That is, that um, he's still capital K king. And what so infuriates him is that, no, he's being treated first like um, lowercase king, and then when he asks um, Oswald, do you know who I am? And Oswald's response is... Oswald's supposed to say the king, but instead he says, my lady's father. And then later on in the play, when someone recognizes him as the king, he's surprised uh, because he hasn't been thinking of himself as a king now for two acts. And then his response to that is, I, every inch a king. That is, he becomes, it, it, it matters to him at that moment that he still is, in some sense, the fusion of the two bodies. But yeah, that's, it is a really interesting question with respect to King Lear. But at any rate, what, yeah, Nicole. I was going to say, um, I guess Macbeth can't believe he has God's power the same way Richard II does because he's kind of gone against like divine law or whatever, so he has to believe that he has like this Satan's power in a way, which I guess might be why he trusts the witches. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and um, in particular, what James is saying in his account of the witches and going to see the witch, witch trials and so on, uh, he has to defend himself. It's actually really interesting that he has to defend himself against the skepticism. So notice that what James is doing is he's saying some people think witches don't exist. In particular, they're, um, Reginald Scott, but there are others, but Reginald Scott is the main person who he's writing against. Scott has written, had written his um, uh, account of witchcraft about 10, and f 10 or 15 years before James then went to these witch trials and wrote his uh, defense of the reality of witches or the reality of what they're doing. So Scott is basically saying it's all confirmation bias. And uh, Scott has, he's, he has really, really wonderful moments. Uh, for example, he says, people claim that witches cause storms and, and um, snow to fall and hail to fall and so on. Um, I guarantee you that if all the witches were taken off of the earth, it would still snow. And um, it's actually a really beautiful moment because it's like he's just saying this is the natural world. We know it's the natural world. And we may feel at certain points that we want to blame malevolent forces, but it, it's just the natural world. It's weather. And it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. So then James is trying to prove that witches really do exist. And it's really interesting to read what he's writing because one thing that, one reason that it's important for him to think that witches exist is that one of the witches confesses that uh, she was supposed to destroy him, that Satan wanted James destroyed, and if only uh, she'd gotten a little piece of a garment of his, she would have been able to do it. So why does Satan want James destroyed? Well, if Satan is your enemy and really thinks that you being alive is really bad for things, then you're Harry Potter and he's Voldemort. That is, the very fact that he wants you destroyed shows that you are the captain of the good guys, that you are, that, that, you, that Satan regards you as a great, great enemy to his own dastardly satanic plans, and therefore it's really, really self-flattering to James to think that he's the object of, of satanic enmity and um, it makes him at least like Job, who Satan is allowed to torment as much as he wants, but may make him even like Christ, who Satan tempts in the wilderness. So it's really self-flattering. James has, a, has, a, has a really deep personal reasons for believing in witches, which is witches. Um, and those reasons include the idea that he then becomes the opposite of the witches, he becomes the, the divine figure. And uh, that divinity then is, is that, that's what he wants. So he's got lots and lots of motivation to believe that the witches are real. But he also has to then explain away the fact that if the witches hate him so much, if they have so much power, why does he go talk to them? Why, are they so, why do they seem so powerless when they're put on trial? Why is it that if they are so evil and can do all these terrible things, 
why is it so easy to torture them and get them to confess? And there, again, he has to make the claim that, that A, they themselves don't actually have that power, they, but they cooperate with it. That is, that they are Satan's representatives, but they can only do what they do because Satan does it. And the fact that they think they have power is really that Satan will buck them up until they're caught. And so, so they don't have that power in themselves. These are all things to think about in Macbeth because the question how much power the witches have in Macbeth, they have precisely as little power as the witches do, according to James. They seem to have power, but they don't. And we know that from the very start. Um, though his bark cannot be lost, yet it may be tempest-tossed, if you remember that um, in, in one of the witches' scenes. That is that they can't actually kill people. They can't actually cause sailors to drown. They can't actually uh, cause terrible things to happen, but they can scare people, and they can seem to have supernatural power, and they do have the power to scare, but not the power to kill. Matt? Thereby, it seems like another addition to the argument of had, uh, had Macbeth not heard the, the prophecy, mm-hmm. would it or would it not have still come true? Right. Had he not heard it from the witches? Because it seems there, like you've been saying, not a matter of actual magic, but a matter of the power of suggestion and the power of the mind. Yeah, exactly. So what the witches can do... Nicole, do you want to yeah, speak to that? Yeah, I, I was going to say that, I mean, he, he could, it could still have happened, uh, it could still have happened even if he didn't speak to the witches because uh, the witches can make things happen, but can't they still predict things that are going to happen? Can't they still prophesy things yeah. that are going to happen? And that's kind of a separate issue. So. Yeah, and what they can do is what anyone who has knowledge can do. That is that if they... They, they have, well, again, to quote The Winter's Tale, the, a character in The Winter's Tale who seems to have magical powers says, don't think that I'm doing anything, that any witchcraft here or that anything here is not above board. If it's magic, it is an art lawful as eating. That is that what she's managed to do is she's done by purely natural means, even if it looks supernatural. And, um, yeah, if you happen to know the future, and they can see into the seeds of time, they do know the future, if you happen to know the future, then you can use that the way any person without magical powers, but any person who knows the future, can use the knowledge that they have, or can use any knowledge that you have. So if you have knowledge, then you can be a character in a play, and your knowledge can be part of the... the toolkit that you have to pressure other people and manipulate other people, which is what characters and plays are always doing. So the knowledge they have is supernatural, but they but it doesn't give them supernatural power. The supernatural knowledge that they have gives them what's only natural power, which is the power to use that knowledge. And I think that's the that's the crucial distinction. They do know the future, but of course everyone watching the play knows the future as well but they do know the future, and they can predict it. Again, as you'll see in Antony and Cleopatra, 
the soothsayer figure. So how many, I asked this before I know, but I'm going to ask again. How many have read Julius Caesar or seen it? Um, so the soothsayer in Julius Caesar is a, a kind of uh, figure who you worry about because he says, beware the Ides of March, and he, he's the voice of some truth that comes from a supernatural world. He knows the truth. He knows Caesar should be, be wearing the eyes of March. Then there's a soothsayer in Antony and Cleopatra, the one who says that um, Antony's genius is rebuked by Caesar's, what we were looking at on Tuesday. And the soothsayer, as you'll see in Antony and Cleopatra, is, should be, almost always is, in every play, in every work where there's soothsayers, you don't want, the soothsayer is always an uncanny figure. The soothsayer is always a figure who is um, people, who, make, who, who will make people nervous. And because the soothsayer is in touch with truths that, of, of the future that the rest of us aren't. The soothsayer is semi-prophetic. In Andy and Cleopatra, the soothsayer, although everyone knows that he is likely able to see the future. I might be exaggerating here a little bit, and it depends how you play it. Although, but although everyone knows he's a soothsayer, and everyone knows that the soothsayer was right about Julius Caesar, the soothsayer in Cleopatra is a completely ineffective figure. So the first time we see him, he is uh, talking to Cleopatra's women and to... Um, uh, one of Antony's men and to one of Cleopatra's eunuchs. And um, he keeps saying grim, truthful prognostications about the future. And they just make fun of him. And it's not that they don't believe that what he's saying about the future is true. It's that they're not living in the future, they're living in the present. And the soothsayer is saying, you know, oh, grim things are coming. And um, they say, well, our fortune tonight is drunk to bed. That is that they know the future too, and the only future that they care about is that they're going to drink a lot and go to bed that night, um, and that that's going to be fun. And the soothsayer is, loses a, a standard scene that in every other play a soothsayer wins, which is the scene in which the soothsayer is the voice of scary authority who you don't listen to at your peril. And it may be that um, you know Caesar doesn't listen to the soothsayer, uh, Char Charmian and Iris don't listen to, and Alexis don't listen to the soothsayer. But what we think in, in Cleopatra is um, right on for not listening to the soothsayer. It's not that what he's saying is wrong. We know what he's saying is right. It's a tragedy, and it's a tragedy whose history we know. But we still say right on that they are, that they are making fun of the soothsayer, not because they don't believe him, but because they don't care about the future. They care about the present. They don't care what's, you know, we all know we're going to die. That's what the soothsayer is telling them, you are going to die. And because that's what soothsayers always tell you. There's nothing else they ever say. And uh, the soothsayers in Aunt Cleopatra says the same thing, and they don't care. Later, Antony says to the soothsayer, um, 
do you wish you were back in Egypt? He's come with Antony to Rome. You wish yourself back in Egypt. And the soothsayer is just bitter. Soothsayers aren't supposed to be bitter. They're just supposed to tell you the truth. And they know that nothing can be done, but they tell you the truth. But the soothsayer is just bitter. And he says, would I had never come from thence nor you thither? Basically, the soothsayer is saying to Annie, I wish I'd never met you. And that's an amazing thing for a soothsayer to say. I wish I'd never met you. And, but that's what the soothsayer in Annie and Cleopatra says. And that, I think, is continuous. Again, remember what we'll always remember is that he's writing these simultaneously. That I think that's continuous with the idea that the witches don't actually have power. Yeah? So I think there's an interesting contrast, a comparison with messengers as well. Because messengers are telling people about the present. Yes. It's the message, and you're talking about soothsayers and witches, so it's messages from the future. Yeah. But the uh, Cleopatra is not so happy with the messenger. Yeah. I mean, she, she, that's the present, and she just tells him, you know, tortures him. Yes. And messengers in this play as well. Yeah. So which messenger are you thinking of here? There's the messenger sent to Macduff. Yeah. 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 I think that messenger should absolutely be compared to the messengers in Annie and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. So uh, one essay we'll read when we do Annie and Cleopatra is by, oh, fuck, what's her name? Laura Quinney, I think. Um, yeah, that's her name. Um, which is a great essay on Annie and Cleopatra called, uh, called Enter a Messenger. And it's about the messengers in Annie and Cleopatra. And the... The mess, what, as you'll see, what happens in Antony and Cleopatra is when messengers come to Antony, he just wants to know what they have to say. And um, the messengers, one messenger says to Antony, um, I have really bad news. And Antony says, Well, what is it? And the messenger says, Well, the nature of bad news infects the teller. He's worried about telling the message. And Antony says, Not with me. Um, it, who, who tells me truth, though in his tale lies death, I hear him as he flattered. So all Antony wants from the messenger is the truth. Sooth is a synonym for truth. Sooth to say means truth to say. It's a rhyming synonym. It's really useful. And the, um, when Cleopatra, when a messenger comes to Cleopatra to tell her bad news about Antony, uh, she tries to bribe him to tell her better news. And she says, you know, I'll, I'll give you riches um, uh, if, if, you tell me, if you tell me good news. And he then tells her the truth, and she says, okay, I'm going to melt the gold I just promised you and pour it down your throat. And uh, the messenger is really, really unhappy about having to tell Cleopatra the message that he's been sent um, to tell her. But the messengers... the to some extent, the soothsayer and the, um, you're right to compare the witches and the soothsayer to messengers, although they're talking about the future rather than the present. Um, it's, but it's also interesting to look at the actual messengers in Macbeth, and particular, the, particularly, in particular, the messenger sent to Macduff uh, to tell him uh, that Macbeth wants him and um, the messenger that Macduff refuses. E, were you going to say something? No. You sure? No. Okay. Um, but the idea that the king's touch is curative and that the king of England can cure Scotland 
um, as we'll see. So the King of England is Edward the Confessor, who is known for his piety at the time. And the, uh, the idea that he could be a conduit for uh, God's curative powers, that, that is the, it's the good magic that the king uh, is, has by virtue of his divine sta- status as God's vicar. That's certainly an idea in Macbeth, but it's also not at all clear that uh, it works in Macbeth. And one thing to remember, one reason to read the history, is to see what you actually think about Malcolm. So Malcolm is supposed to be, you know, one puzzle about Macbeth, if you don't know the history, and it's a puzzle even if you do know the history, is you'll be expecting that at the end of the play, Fleance will be king, or that at least it will be clear how Fleance gets to be king, and it isn't. At the end of the play, it's Malcolm who becomes king. He's about to go to Scone and, um, in order to be um, to, to, uh, for his coronation. Um, who we, the, anyone know the last line of the play? <laughs> oh, yes. There is that way of knowing the last line of the play, which is to look at your little codex device. Whom we invite... Do you have it? Are you there? Yeah, so you want the last line? Or the last Not two the lines. Last yeah, but sure, it's the last sentence. So thanks to all at once and each one whom we invite to see us crowned at school. Yeah. Flourish, the Yes. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's Malcolm who is about to become king. And um, he invites each one. It's a, it's a couplet. Um, each one whom we invite to see us crowned at Rhymet. One, scun. Um, so it's probably somewhere between scon and scun, and one is probably somewhere, the way it was pronounced then was one and one. Uh, there's something called, just so you know, there's something called the great vowel shift, which occurred after Shakespeare, and you're nodding, so what is it? It's where basically all the vowels change. That, that just, um, it's just like a lot of things like it used to be, I, I'm trying to think of examples, but I don't know exact examples, but it's like, a lot of words pronounced. It's why Shakespeare's writing and a lot of older writing is so hard to sort of understand and read if you first look at it, because it is words that we would say now, but it just was written before the Great Battle Ship. Yeah, and the closest thing actually to Shakespearean English is probably um, Appalachian English, especially in West Virginia. So if you guys saw um, Inglorious Bastards, anyone seen it? Um, so um, Brad Pitt actually does, people say, a perfect West Virginia accent in that movie. A lot of people made fun of him because they said, this is just the worst southern accent I've ever heard. But that's because they didn't know West Virginian accents. And the character's from West Virginia. And uh, he, apparently, the dialogue coaching was perfect, and his accent is perfect. That's the closest thing now to the sound of Shakespearean English. Yeah. Actually, I don't think that's necessarily true because there's an island off the coast of North Carolina, I believe, where they've been so isolated from, like, they got there and they just didn't want to leave, and that is the closest the thing. The Gullah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the closest thing to Shakespearean and Old English. Okay, that's interesting. Um, when you have interviews and you cannot understand them. Yeah. I mean, middle, like, I mean, if you want to go that far, then, then you could say that Icelandic is, has the most the best sounds for that because Icelandic sounds a lot like Middle English 
And the yeah. pronunciation is pretty much the same. Yeah, but but Shakespeare's not writing in Middle English. No, he's not. But the but the pronunciation is probably quite similar. The vowel shift probably occurred between yeah. the pronunciations of Middle yeah. English. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also like a very different language. <laughs> it's a different language, but the but the sounds is what we're talking about. I mean, that's valid, but it's that you could say that like you know a lot of languages sound similar, but they're not the same. You know, yes. Like Icelandic and English should. They, they didn't really interact. I mean, other than, like, the Scandinavian influence. Well, the no, they, they, Vikings, Icelandic but, sounds like Middle English, and the reason is because it interacted with Middle English, and the vowel sounds, or at least I'm assuming so, before the vowel shift came from Middle English. Yes, but I'm, it is a very, it's, very... It's different a different... Language. Like, you, I've, like, I've tried to speak, you know... I, yeah, so I know. I understand that. You cannot, I don't think they're comparable, like, quite honestly. I, I understand you sound, but that's almost like saying... Portuguese sounds like drunk Russian, like, you know, they sound, <laughs> they sound like that, but it, they're not, you can't, you can't compare them. Yeah, but the sounds way. aren't associated with the same root in that case. These languages are actually similar. You're both right. <laughs> You're both right. Um, no, that, you are both right. Uh, but the other thing to notice is that um, Icelandic people speak better English than we do. <laughs> um, when they speak English, their English is is ridiculously good. Yeah. What caused this vowel shift? I don't know. Just it's it just, it, <laughs> probably no. Probably a lot of it was literacy. That is that once we're, once people are reading words and sounding them out, they're mispronouncing them because the same vowels are used for different sounds as as we know in English, and um, but. I don't know what the other linguistic theories are, but but languages do mutate at, um, um, in ways that are predictable, and I think large mutations will sometimes occur, and small mutations are always occurring. Nicole? Did the vowel shift occur like before, after, or during the colonial, the British colonial era? Um, I believe during. So, yeah, but you know, if you hear the difference between strine and English, English, and American English. Um, those are you can you can time how quickly uh, different uh, isolated uses of the language um, diverge or or subcontinental English. Um, it's the the timing is is fairly um, uh, standard, but there is this thing called the Great Vowel Shift where where vowel sounds change. Um, the word. Um, wind, for example, as the wind is blowing, up until the 18th century was pronounced wind. And, uh, and so when you see Shakespeare, blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind, um, that was a perfect rhyme for Shakespeare. It was blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind. And um, the, uh, you know, it just feels wrong to pronounce it that way to us because it should be a familiar word, and wind, meaning wind, is not a familiar word. But it was a perfect rhyme for Shakespeare, so that's worth knowing. Yeah. Did you get from the 18th century? Because I think in a romanticism class, there were a couple of poems where wind did. No, then it becomes a conventional rhyme. So uh, that's something we talked a little bit about in the 18th century, in, in the romanticism class, that, that there are words that we understand as rhyming, even though they don't, because they've been um, treated as rhyming so often. That we we um, the more poetry you read, the harder it'll be not to think of words rhyming that don't in fact rhyme, um, because they they um, they flick that switch in your brain, which is rhyme has occurred, 
and even if it hasn't occurred, you think it has. So that's, it's, it's an interesting trick in poetry when you think something rhymes and it doesn't. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a base level interesting trick in poetry when you think something doesn't rhyme, but it does. That is, if you write something that's rhyming, but audiences don't notice that it rhymes. And that's a great thing to be able to do, but even greater is to be able to make an audience think something does rhyme when it doesn't. And um, some of that occurs through, uh, through the fact that these words are taken to rhyme throughout the history of English poetry because they once rhymed. And if you have read enough English poetry, you just default to the idea that they're rhyming even when they're not. So um, that's one example of that. Uh, are we far afield? <laughs> a little bit. So it's, it's witchcraft. It's poetic witchcraft. It's, it's just amazing how poetry can enchant you into, into thinking of that. And speaking of witches, so the... Um, but what you're bringing up is the idea that there is, and that this is the way Shakespeare is splattering James, is that there is this antagonism between uh, the, the divinity of the king and the infernality of the witches, but the king is protected. And the king is both a target for their spells and someone who can shake those spells off because he's protected by God. Um, that contrast between like the like power of the like the divine power of the king and then like the evil power of the witches is also something that kind of like shows up like in the Tempest as far as like which was also written for James as far as like like the contrast that like Prospero isn't thought of as a witch like he never gets called a witch mm -hmm. even though like that's effectively what he's doing like, he's not a king though he kind of makes himself the king of the island whereas like the like Halvan's mother is decidedly a witch. She's called yeah. a witch multiple times. Mm -hmm. The witch Sycorax. Yeah, and then Halvan is treated as such. Mm -hmm. But like that contrast as well, and then the fact that he tries to kill him. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, and and Prospero's magic is also it. It's not. It's it's pro, it's potentially not or barely supernatural. Mm -hmm. That is, it's not, he, he is a human being who is, who is, with the help of Ariel and with his ability to communicate with the spirits of the island, uh, he's able to do good things. But it's partly that Ariel owes him his freedom. And Ariel owes Prospero his, Ariel's freedom. And his, his obedience to Prospero is partly a moral rather than a magical thing. So Ariel is a magical creature, but his obedience to Prospero is, is a moral one. And Prospero, when Ariel starts chafing at what Prospero is asking him to do, Prospero reminds him of what he owes, what he owes him. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice uh, juxtaposition as well. Because like he was presumably also doing like magic before he was on the island, because that's like the guise under which he gets thrown out. Mm -hmm. Was like he wasn't paying enough attention to everything that like all of his like responsibilities. Yeah, no, he's spending all his time. Re he's spending all his time like doing magic. Do you know what Prospero is the Italian for, or what the um, German uh, <laughs> word for? So obviously Prospero means something like 
um, made to prosper. Um, it actually means um, uh, made to prosper by God, um, God's a favorite of God's. Um, but the but the root meaning is is the same as our as our word prosper. The German for that, anyone? A German figure who is really really. Um, good at what he does and prosperous and spends all his time then reading magical books? Faust. So Faust is German for Prospero, Prospero is Italian for Faust. And Faust, of course, is um, communicating with devils. Prospero isn't, but uh, um, Marlowe has written Dr. Faustus, and Dr. Faustus was... uh, Maybe the single most influential play for Shakespeare's own playwriting. Not, you know, there are a lot of plays that um, by Shakespeare's contemporaries that were extremely influential to him, and that he got a lot from. But Shakespeare's language, um, a whole lot of what Shakespeare does with his language is something that Marlowe was doing before him, and even though they were the same age, uh, Marlowe was uh, successful earlier than Shakespeare. And uh, Dr. Faustus, probably more than any other play, was the play that Shakespeare knew best by Marlowe and um, was, had in his head most. So the, um, and Faustus is like Macbeth, in, not like Prospero, but like Macbeth, in calling upon infernal spirits and calling for both their, their prophecy and their age. And uh, so that's a good connection to make as well. Yeah. Sorry about the, the soothsayer um, in relation to Macbeth, in relation to the witches in Macbeth, right? Like, I haven't read Ant Man Cleopatra right? yet. Yet. But, uh, um, like, you were saying that the soothsayer is bitter and that all he's really saying is that they're going to die. But how can that be compared to the witches in Macbeth? Because the witches in Macbeth are happy to see Macbeth, kind of. and they're telling him about things that are going to happen right now. Like the murder is something very here and now for Macbeth. So. Yeah, so, so I think it's more that, um, and, and it's more that there is a kind of figure that Shakespeare, that, that before Shakespeare is used simply as a way of conveying information. So if, you know, we talked a little bit before about um, uh, how every scene in a play has to have conflict in it. If you were to take a class in not in screenwriting but Shakespeare writing, that is how to write a Shakespeare play, it would actually look a lot like a screenwriting class. And, uh, or how to write an Elizabethan play, it would look a lot like a screenwriting class. So here, um, I think I mentioned this before, but um, I'm not positive I did in this class. Uh, for me, one of the best books that I ever read on Shakespeare is a book that never mentions Shakespeare, a book called Anatomy of the Screenplay. And it's by a guy named Dan Decker. Did I mention this in this class? Okay, so it's a great book, uh, hard but not impossible to find at a reasonable price, Anatomy of the Screenplay. And it's by a guy who teaches screenwriting. And uh, it's just a brilliant account of, as he says, how to write an American movie. And it's basically how to write the kind of movie that you can sell to Hollywood because it could make a lot of money. And uh, so it's not how to um, be Tarkovsky or Bayatar or Godard. It's how to, how, maybe how to be Steven Spielberg. 
but it's how to write an American movie and how, how, how to keep the audience always interested. And the things that he says, um, essentially what he's doing is he's discovered, and not him alone, obviously, but what he's doing is um, uh, figuring out what it is that makes the movies that work, work. And um, he has a few basic ideas, the most basic of which is, uh, which we won't talk about right now, but will come up later on, is the idea of convergence. That is, um, so the basic idea is that you have a lot of different characters in a movie, as you have a lot of different characters in a Shakespeare play, but at the very end, in the very last scene of the movie, all surviving characters converge. That is, the last scene is a scene in which everyone who we've been tracing and tracking and following over the course of the movie, um, they all are in the final scene. And that can just mean that that's the showdown. That is, the villain and the hero finally meet. And they, they have the gunfight on Main Street with everyone else watching. But what you don't have is some other major character who's off um, in London um, doing something entirely different. Everyone has to be there in the last scene. They all have to converge. You'll see that that happens in Shakespeare plays. And um, another idea that he has, and I think we did talk about this. Um, in, no, we talked about, um, I, I gave you the vocabulary of Maine. Um, as opposed to protagonists, but then we started talking about protagonists. So, in um, but if you think of uh, there are four basic types of character, and you will see this in in any Shakespeare play and in most scenes, um, the basic types of character being main, opposition, um, um, goal or or um, the thing that you want, which is uh, doesn't have to be another it doesn't have to be another character but can be so that in a rom-com it's the um, the thing that you want is the person that the main character is in love with. Um, but in a caper movie, the objective would be money or would be gold or would be the rabbit's foot um, to talk about I think it's mi3. Uh, Mission Impossible 3. Um, and window. And what a window character is, is someone that um, in dialogue with usually the main character, uh, you find out what the main character wants, needs, is doing, is thinking, and so on. Otherwise, you have to have the main character doing voiceover, the equivalent of Shakespearean soliloquy, but voiceover and soliloquy are kind of embarrassing and boring. So instead, you have a buddy for the main character. And in any scene, this is true of movies as a whole, but it's also the case that any scene will have, for that scene, will have a main character and um, frequently have opposition within the scene and frequently have an objective within the scene and will have a window character within the scene. So you can imagine that first we're seeing the, you know, the main character is the good guy and yes, we really, really have to get um, this uh, um, this antidote to this um, town um, in the Yukon where p if people don't get this antibiotic they will die and so the main character has an objective which is to get to the Yukon 
um, with this antibiotic in order to save the people who are there. But there's a dastardly opposition character who wants to sell his own crappier, less um, um, effective brand of antibiotic to these people in the Yukon for a whole lot of money or for the, all the mining rights in the Yukon. And so the opposition is going to try to stop the main character from getting to the Yukon. And um, the main character is saying to the um, doctor who says, you have to get this to them or they will die, um, the main character says, well, I'm going to get it to them despite the fact that a horrible storm is brewing because if I don't get it to them, they will die, and then you'll know what the main character is trying to do. But then you might cut to a scene where the opposition character is saying, we have to stop the main, and um, now the opposition is the main in the second scene, and he is telling a minion, a henchman, um, we have to stop the main character. So, so, the, so his objective now is stopping the main character. And um, what he wants out of, and um, he, he um, and his opposition is the main character, and his window character is whatever minion he's telling this to. And so every play or movie, but also most scenes within a play or movie, you can identify um, a main character an opposition like the minion is saying, no, it's too dangerous to try to stop him. He has superpowers um, because I happen to know that Clark Kent is really Superman or something like that. And so there's a minion saying, it's a bad idea to try and go against this good guy. And the main character in that scene will say, no, but you don't realize that I have some kryptonite. And now the window character, who's also the opposition, um, who's trying to stop the main um, character in that scene from doing something dastardly. Are people still following this? Um, um, is uh, talking to someone trying to stop him, but saying why he's going to do it. And so the opposition also becomes a window character. And the objective is still to stop the good guy from fulfilling his objective, which is to get the antibiotic to the town in the Yukon. So that interaction among those four different kinds of characters, they, those, are, those are both global and local in any scene within a play. Yeah? So other than as like a romantic object, in what way is a goal a character? Um, well, romantic objects are not, you, they, they, you shouldn't dismiss them as just, as just a, a trivial example no, of a goal a character. I mean, are there other, like, because you're talking about the rabbit's foot, et cetera, but yeah. those aren't characters unless you're saying that they are a character in the way that they like influence the plot. Um, how well, it depends what you mean by romantic, but it may be that your goal is to get people to vote for you, um, and so then um, getting getting those people. Uh, your goal might be their votes, but your goal might might also be the respect of those people. Um, you. Um, you know, if you think of something like um, It's a Wonderful Life, where the goal is to make people, um, prevent people from going bankrupt. So is the goal non-bankruptcy? No, because it's, it's particular people's non-bankruptcy that, that is the goal. Um, so you would still be thinking of the objective in terms of the human beings who are embodying it. It's a good question, though. It's a really good question. Nicole? Like, I guess Macbeth could be a goal in some ways for the witches. 
Yeah, okay, or, good. Um, also, like, criminal Caesario is kind of a goal in... Um, in Twelfth Night? Twelfth Night, yeah. Like, are criminal. they trying to... Well, he's not a criminal, but, like, they're trying to kill him, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, not Cesario, sorry. No, not no, it's Sebastian. Sib- no. Oh, okay, Antonio. Not, yeah. not Antonio. Not Antonio. I'm not taking a 12th night. I'm okay. taking the other, the other play that we read. Uh, <laughs> um, Antonio? No, and the guy starts with a C. His name starts with a C also. Um, but remember the other play that we read? <laughs> Never mind. Okay, but Macbeth could be a goal. For Coriolanus? No, not Coriolanus. Um, Hamlet? <laughs> all, no, no. Oh, so anyhow, the goal in Hamlet is the objective in Hamlet is Claudius. Yeah. That is killing Claudius. But he's still the objective. And uh, is he the opposition? Sort of. But he's definitely the objective. Okay. Um, loading. What you will, right? What you will, is that a play that we read last night? Yeah, Twelfth Night or What You Will. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure. Measure for Measure. Oh, Measure for Measure. And not Caesarea. What is the name of the guy, the criminal they're trying to kill in? Claudio. Claudio, yeah. But he's not that much of a criminal, but... He's an objective. He's, yeah, so he's an objective evangelist. <laughs> he's an objective evangelist, yeah. Or his death is, yeah, yeah, killing him as... as uh, um, he's one objective evangelist, and Isabella, his sister, is Angelo's other objective. Um, yeah, so, but you can, you can always slot characters into that. So soothsayers are window characters, that is, they are information-bearing characters. That's what they're doing. And as are messengers. So a messenger comes with a message, and that gives us information. You could say in the most typical of all scenes, the messenger is actually, for the brief moment that they're delivering the message, they're the main character. They have something to say, and they're saying it. And the person to whom they're delivering the message, who is almost always a much more important important person than they are um, is the window character because they're telling that character the message but what we're getting that you don't you don't have to get hung up on on um, the right nomenclature there but what we're getting at that moment is the idea that we the audience are getting information because a messenger is giving that information to to another character, and we are hearing what it is. So in Antony and Cleopatra, we find out about the death of Antony's wife at the same moment that Antony finds out about the death of his wife. We find out about what Caesar is doing at the same moment that Antony finds out what Caesar is doing, and vice versa. With soothsayers, they feel a little bit more main-like because they do have this uncanny aspect to them. So when a soothsayer says, beware the Ides of March, we know that he should be bewaring the Ides of March. There's, there's no question that when a soothsayer says, um, beware of something, we think that a character who ignores a soothsayer is making a gigantic mistake. And um, that means that we are getting information that we are discounting less than the character to whom that information is given when, and you know, it's really rare. I mean, there must be obvious examples of this, but it's really rare that when a soothsayer speaks, someone says, oh my God, you're right, I won't do that. 
Um, the whole point is that soothsayers are, in any interesting scene where you have a soothsayer, the soothsayer is disbelieved. Yeah, that's sort of, it sort of seems like it would, it would make it all a shorter story if the soothsayer was like, beware the eyes of March, and then he yeah. was like, okay, and the credits just rolled. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lucky I knew that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, so that's a place where, interestingly, we are getting information, and that, maybe that's the distinction. Um, the, uh, between soothsayer and messenger is that messengers are almost always telling us information that, uh, the, that we get on the same level as the person who's receiving the message gets it. Uh, your wife is dead, auntie knows it, we know it. Um, but soothsayers are, are, are um, creating an interesting bifurcation between the information that uh, an audience is accepting as true. You know, everything the soothsayer says in Annie and Cleopatra is true. Um, in Annie and Cleopatra, the soothsayer says, uh, um, you will outlive the lady whom you serve. And the lady whom she serves is Cleopatra, and she does outlive her um, by about 30 seconds, but she does outlive her. And um, you'll be more loving than beloved. Everything the soothsayer says is true, but Unlike in most, um, and everything the witches say in uh, Macbeth is true. Um, I guess Macbeth does believe the witches, so they're not the same thing as a soothsayer, but then the witches turn out to be tricky. Okay, we still haven't gotten to the moment in De Quincey that I also wanted us to look at, but um, the, I think a main takeaway, there are several takeaways from reading Scott and reading James, but a main takeaway is that the witches don't actually have power. The, what they are able to do is manipulate. And that's going, that I think is what that Hecate scene is doing in Act 3, where Hecate says, you know, why are you messing around with Macbeth the way, the way you are? And it turns out that the witches are people who mess with people, are, are beings that mess with people, Rather, and, and you know, mess with people to their own harm, but um, not creatures who can cause the um, things that they know. They, there is a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it, obviously, but Macbeth was going to be king no matter what, and um, Banquo was going to be the father of kings no matter what, and there was no way around that. And the fact that they're part of it um, is uh, interesting, but their being part of it is psychological rather than supernatural. So they use supernatural um, knowledge in a psychological way, and that really does fit with what James is saying, that the witches don't actually have power except insofar as they're in league with the devil but the devil isn't particularly interested in helping witches who've been caught. What's the point? They've been caught. Um, he doesn't need them. And uh, that's why James is not afraid of them. Okay, just to, but, um, to, to talk about the psychology here, um, and just to go back uh, to De Quincey um, for the last couple of minutes of class, um, the other thing that, so he said um, that what we're looking at on Tuesday, um, that what 
Shakespeare is trying to do is not the easy thing, which is to make us feel sympathetic towards the person who's murdered, but the much more interesting and much more difficult thing, which is to make us feel um, sympathy for Macbeth. And then he has to explain what he means by sympathy, and that he's not using the word sympathy in the ordinary sense of pity. And that is an important distinction that he's making, not simply, oh, I'm using the word sympathy in its technical sense and don't worry about it, but that what he's saying is that there actually is something called sympathy which is different from pity. And that's an important point, an important insight. Not, it's not, he's not the first person to have this insight, but he's very eloquent about it. So sympathy literally means the same feeling. Um, and what he says, this is, what, this is uh, the passage that we were looking at on Tuesday, but just to continue, he says, um, what must Shakespeare do since he doesn't want to um, simply show uh, the fear of the murdered person? He must throw the interest on the murderer. So that's what Shakespeare does in Macbeth, obviously. He must throw the interest on the murderer. Our sympathy must be with him. And then he says, of course, I mean a sympathy of comprehension, a sympathy by which we enter into his feelings and are made to understand them, not a sympathy of pity or approbation. And then he has a footnote on the word sympathy. It seems almost ludicrous to guard and explain my use of a word in a situation where it would naturally explain itself, but it has become necessary to do so in consequence of the unscholarlike use of the word sympathy at present so general, by which instead of taking it in its proper sense as the act of reproducing in our minds the feelings of another, whether for hatred, indignation, love, pity, or approbation, it is made instead a mere synonym of the word pity, and hence, instead of saying sympathy with another, many writers adopt the monstrous barbarism of sympathy for another. So, never, so what he's saying is you will be a monstrous barbarian if you ever say, I have sympathy for you. Yeah. So is, is in this example, is he equating sympathy with empathy? So it's what we now tend to call empathy, yeah, yeah. which is to know the feeling um, but not to um, share the attitude of the person whose feeling we know. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about how like, James liked to believe that witches exist because then he's the good guy. So here, since Macbeth is the victim of the witches, that might be another thing that makes him the good guy in our eyes. Um, that Macbeth is. Well, it certainly what makes him the main in our eyes, which is that he has to deal with witches who seem to completely have the upper hand. And um, uh, calling him the good guy is going to be a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the crucial thing that De Quincey is saying is that um, we might reproduce in our minds the feelings of another whether for hatred. So why would you reproduce in your minds the feeling of another person in order to feel hatred for them? Yeah. <coughs> um, well, like, if you're, like, tracing his thought process, and he makes the jump from, oh, I shouldn't kill Dunning to, oh, yeah, I should, mm -hmm. like, that's, like, a hard jump to make, and then that's, like, very extreme. Yeah, and so, so the next word he uses is indignation. So what he's seeing psychologically here 
is that the way we cultivate, which we do, this is a version of, of what I was saying before about people getting angry. The way you cultivate hatred or indignation in someone, just think of the time you have a really bad fight with an erotic coefficient or a parent, um, and you just think about what a jerk they're being. Um, one of the ways that you will explain to yourself what a jerk they're being is you'll see things from their point of view. And from their point of view, their point of view will be the point of view of a jerk. And um, that moment where we, um, where we sympathize with the point of view of a jerk is not in order to feel better about them, but in order to, to hate them more or to get more indignant about them. And, you know, it takes form saying, I can't imagine how you could possibly do this in this situation. But you are imagining how they could do it. They can do it because they're a jerk. And um, that's what De Quincey is talking about. So is Macbeth a jerk? No. That would not be uh, a right uh, summary of Macbeth. But the idea that we are being brought to see things from his point of view without feeling pity for him, although I don't know that we don't feel pity for him at the end, but without feeling pity for him, that is an important thing that, that De Quincey is saying. Okay, act four for next week. And have a good weekend. Uh, I could just ask a brief question about the cutscene. Yeah.